0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Serene Jones, the president of the AAR. Actually, I stepped down this morning when the gavel fell at the uh, business meeting, but I still get to uh, uh, be a part of these amazing conversations. So this year, as you know, the topic is revolutionary love. And yesterday, we had a panel that focused specifically on the relationship of revolutionary love to the hatreds, uh, the many hatreds that have uh, marked Um, not only the presidential campaign, but the long history of the United States. Today, we are so very privileged as a community um, to hear a conversation between two women for whom the work on that intersection between the institutionalized hatreds of our times and what love's got to do with it are going to have a conversation. Um, Michelle Alexander, and Kelly Brown-Douglas. And I will introduce them both very briefly because we want to have time to hear from them. Uh, uh, Kelly Brown-Douglas is a professor at Goucher College and the author of many books, many articles. um, But the most important one for our conversations today is Stand Your Ground, um, which explores the same territory as now I'll introduce Michelle Alexander, um, who I am thrilled to say is visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Uh, She is coming to seminary, so she is stepping into the world of the AAR for the first time. So we'll have to get a little anthropological report from her afterwards as to what we're actually like. Um, But she is also the author of, of, of many articles um, been featured in many films, um, but most importantly, um, as a public intellectual, is the author of The New Jim Crow. Um, as you might expect, uh, when, we, when I planned this originally, I had one plan for how it would go, and uh, uh, Kelly and Michelle began to talk to each other, and we have changed the format. Um, Michelle had no desire to simply stand up and to this group didactically present something um, she wanted to talk with Kelly. Kelly, similarly, um, had so many questions for Michelle and Michelle for Kelly, so we've turned this in to a conversation which I think embodies the deepest values of both of them. So we will begin by uh, Kelly, in a sense, um, interviewing um, Michelle, who will then, in turn, um, ask similar questions to Kelly. Um, if we have time at the end, we'll open it up for discussions. So, I turn it over to these two remarkable women.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Serene, and thank you. And first, I'd like to thank Michelle for the pleasure of being engaged in this conversation, to thank you for your work not only your work, The New Jim Crow, but the work you have done as an advocate for those whom you have described, those who are most despised in our society and for whom people find it most difficult uh, to muster compassion, those being criminals, the incarcerated, especially those people of color. And so as I thank you, I'm sure we all thank you. So let's begin and get right into it before we discuss, which I know a lot of people would love to hear your read on what has just happened within these last couple of weeks. I want to lay the foundation for that discussion by sort of taking us back a bit to your book, The New Jim Crow, uh, as it indeed in so many ways lays the foundation for discussion of the election results and perhaps the implications of those results. So I want to begin by asking you this. How did you move from seeing a poster advertised on a poll, I think I recall you saying it one time, that described the war on drugs, it said, the new Jim Crow. And when you saw that poster, you said you believed that it was a gross exaggeration of the facts. So how did you move from thinking that was a gross exaggeration of the facts to writing a book on the new Jim Crow? <laughs>
2: Well, yes, you know, I began my book by reflecting on the fact that literally on the first day of my new job as director of the racial justice project for the ACLU in California, I was rushing to catch the bus and I saw that sign and I looked at it and shook my head and thought to myself, yeah, the criminal justice system is racist in a lot of ways, but it doesn't help by making such absurd comparisons. to Jim Crow, Um, you know, and then I cross the street, hop on the bus to my new job, directing the Racial Justice Project. And you know, when I began my job there, I wasn't ignorant um, about the prevalence of racial bias in our criminal justice system or, you know, in society generally, but I did not at that time fully grasp what was going on. Um, in terms of how law enforcement was operating in our poorest communities, particularly communities of color. And I had a number of experiences that kind of finally brought about what I now call my awakening. Um, But one in particular uh, really shook me to my core. it involved a young African-American man who was about 19 years old who walked into my office one day and you know completely changed the way I view not only our criminal justice system, but really how I view myself as a civil rights lawyer and advocate. At the time, we had just launched a major campaign. Um, challenging racial profiling by the police. We called it the DWB campaign, the driving while black or brown campaign, and we had already sued the California Highway Patrol for um, racial profiling and their drug addiction practices, but we were looking to sue some other police departments around California as well, departments, you know, about whom we received complaints of discriminatory stops or searches and so we set up a hotline number for people to call if they believe they've been stopped or targeted by the police on the basis of race and we put this hotline number up on billboards and uh, we created a radio ad and in fact in the first night that we announced our hotline on the evening news, we received thousands of calls. Our system crashed temporarily. We had to expand our capacity to deal with the volume of calls we were receiving um, from people complaining of discriminatory stops and searches. And so I was spending my day um, interviewing one young black or brown man after another who had called the hotline to report discrimination by the police. And it was late in the afternoon, and I was getting tired. And this young man comes in carrying a stack of papers about this thick. He had taken detailed notes of his encounters with the Oakland Police Department over about a nine-month period of time. He had recorded every time he was stopped and frisked, every time he was driving a car and pulled over, or he was a passenger in a car that was pulled over, and what happened, whether the car was searched, whether he was made to lie spread eagle on the pavement, if anyone was roughed up, if he was cursed at, just dates, times, locations, descriptions of every stop. Uh, He had names of officers and something, even badge numbers for a couple of the incidents. He had names of witnesses, who was in the car with him, who was on the street with them? so we could follow up. Just an unbelievable amount of documentation in detail about this pattern of stops that he had experienced. And so, as a lawyer, I started to get a little excited. <laughs> and I said, you know, tell me more, tell me more. And. I started thinking. think, you know, I think he's our dream plaintiff. He's the one. We've been thinking about filing a class action suit against the Oakland Police Department. He could be our lead plaintiff. And I'm listening to him, and I'm thinking, he's perfect. He was a good-looking young man, <laughs> thinking the media is going to love him. He was well-spoken. And then he said something that made me pause. And I said, uh, what did you just say? You know, did you just say you're a felon? Did you just say you're a drug felon? We had actually been screening people um, with criminal convictions. When people would call our hotline number, we would send a form to them to fill out asking them a bunch of questions about their experiences with the police and one of them was, have you ever been convicted of a felony? We believed that we could not possibly represent someone as a named plaintiff in a class action racial profiling suit who had a felony record because we knew that if we did, Law enforcement and the media would just be all over us, saying, well, of course, we're keeping our eye on him. He's a felon, he's a criminal. This isn't about race, this is about us going after the bad guys. And we knew if we put him on the stand um, in front of the jury, we'd be exposing him to cross-examination about his prior criminal history, you know, that's deflecting attention, the jury's attention away from the police conduct and turning it into a mini-trial about some young man's criminal past. So we have been screening people. And this young man had not you know, checked the box. And so I'm looking at him just saying, whoa, whoa, what, what, are, you, what are you saying right now? You're, you're a felon, you're a drug felon? And he gets really quiet and he's just staring down at the table. And then finally he looks up and he looks me right in the eye and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a felon, but let me tell you what happened to me. The police planted drugs on me and they beat up me and my friend. He just starts telling me this whole story about how he was framed by the police and police were planting drugs on him and him and his friend. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am sorry, I cannot represent you as a felon. And I tried to explain to him, so sorry. I hope you can understand, yada, yada. He keeps trying to tell me more information, more details. Now he's trying to tell me the name of those officers and where I can find information about him and how he was framed and who I can call or back up his story. And I'm like, I am sorry. I cannot represent you. It's like, I'm telling you, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I just took the plea because I was afraid of doing the time. I just took the plea. They told me, you know, if I just took the plea, I could just walk straight out of there. Just walk out with just felony probation. I could just walk straight out of there. But... You know, I, 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 I was scared of doing the time. They was telling me I'd, I could do 10, maybe 15 years in prison for this. But I, if I just took the plea, I could walk out. And I was like, I am sorry. I cannot represent you. And then he becomes enraged. And he says to me, you're no better than the police. You're no better than the police. The minute I tell you I'm a felon, you just stop listening. You can't even hear what I'm trying to say. He's like, what's to become of me? What's to become of me? He says, you know I can't get a job anywhere because of my felony record, anywhere. He says, what's to become of me? What am I supposed to do? He says, do you know I have to sleep in my grandma's basement at night because public housing won't even take me in? How am I supposed to take care of myself as a man? He says, you know I can't even get food stamps, food, because of my drug felony? Says, good luck finding one young black man in my neighborhood they haven't gotten to yet. They've gotten to us all already. And with that, he picks up all of those notes, handwritten notes, and he just starts ripping them up in front of my face, just ripping up, throwing them in the air, and walks out, saying, you're no better than the police. I can't believe I trusted you. Well, several months after that, I was doing a public access television interview in his neighborhood. We were trying to organize a few thousand people to go to the Capitol to protest the governor's refusal to sign a racial profiling bill. So we were trying to get people to get on the bus and go to the Capitol, participate in the demonstration. And so I was doing public access TV, broadcasting live out of his neighborhood. The minute the show goes off the air, he comes bursting into the studio carrying this dirty, potted plant. And he's emotional, practically on the verge of tears, and he comes rushing up to me, and he thrusts this plant in my arms, and he says, I'm here I'm here just to tell you I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. I shouldn't have treated you that way. He's like, I've been seeing you on the news, I've been seeing you out there trying to fight for our people, trying to do the right thing, and I shouldn't have done you like that. He said, I would have bought you some flowers, but I don't got no money. I snatch this plant from my grandma's front porch here. <laughs> <laughs> Pushes it in my hands and then he turns around and he's emotionally he goes running out of the building. I go chasing after him and he jumps into this broke down car and he takes off. Well, several months after that, I'm in my office, open up the newspaper. What's on the front page? Well, the Oakland Riders police scandal is broken turns out that a gang of police officers, otherwise known as a drug task force, had been planting drugs on suspects, beating folks up in his neighborhood. And who is identified as one of the main officers charged with planting drugs on suspects, beating folks up? The officer he identified to me as having planted drugs on him and beat up him and his friend. It's embarrassing to admit that it was only then that the light bulb finally, you know, started to go on. You know, when I realized he's right about me. I am no better than the police. And the minute he told me he was a felon, I just stopped listening. I couldn't even hear what he had to say. And that was the beginning of my journey of, doing an enormous amount of research, trying to figure out why was it really that we hadn't been able to find one young black man in his neighborhood they hadn't gotten to yet? What was really going on? And so I began just an enormous amount of research, asking myself and others a lot of hard questions and listening, finally listening more carefully to the stories of those cycling in and out of prison. And what I really learned in that process was that my great crime wasn't in failing to represent an innocent man. My great crime was in imagining that there was some path to racial justice that did not include those we view as guilty. And I learned some facts that blew my mind. You know, I came to see how we became the most punitive nation in the world and quintupled our prison population for reasons that had scarcely little to do with actual crime and crime rates. How we had managed to create a new caste system where millions of people, overwhelmingly poor people and people of color, had been swept into our criminal justice system primarily for nonviolent and drug-related crimes, the very sorts of crimes that occur with roughly equal frequency in communities of all colors had been swept in, in the 80s and into the 90s, branded criminals and felons, and then released into a parallel social universe in which the basic civil and human rights, supposedly won in the civil rights movement, no longer applied to them. They could be stripped of the right to vote, automatically excluded from juries, and legally discriminated against in employment, housing, access to education, and basic public benefits. It was like a curtain had been pulled back, and suddenly I could see what was staring me, you know, um, was hidden in plain sight the, the whole time. And I came to realize that this awakening that I finally had that I myself as someone who cared about social and racial justice had been blind to, that this was awakening that other folks (laughs) desperately needed to have as well. And that's really what brought me to finally writing the book, um, hoping that um, I might be able to help other folks finally wake up um, to what I myself had been in denial about for too long.
1: There's so much there, that, so much there, there, right? So much there I want to follow up on, and one of which is this awakening that you had because you will later call for a revolutionary change in consciousness. I want to put that for a minute on the back burner, knowing that we're going to come back to that and ask you, stay, stay with this book, your book for a uh, moment. Uh, one, what was the most surprising thing that you discovered in terms of your, our criminal justice system? And if I can tack another question on with that. As you, you discuss in your book and uh, in many other places, of course, the way in which uh, the Clinton presidency, <laughs> essentially created the prison industrial complex, or at least gave it a great big boost, uh, the way in which, of course, uh, there was an 171% increase Mm -hmm. in funding during his presidency for uh, the prison industrial complex with a commensurate decrease Mm -hmm. uh, in housing, leading you and others to say that the best housing plan for the poor under Clinton's administration was the prison industrial complex, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and of course you've talked about the ways in which welfare reform, his welfare reform plan, mm-hmm. quote unquote, uh, has led to the increase of that. So now we see President Obama, who's tried to roll back, in some respects, those uh, policies under President Clinton. One with. Uh, Hardening with his uh, 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 commuting sentences, trying to get rid of solitary confinement, particularly for juveniles, Mm -hmm. uh, fair sentencing practices, ban the box where you said the guy couldn't get a job because he has to check off whether or not Mm -hmm. he's a felon. And of course, President Clinton, uh, President Obama has tried to eliminate that. So my question for you is not simply, what was the most surprising thing that you found in your research, but how can we turn it around? Do you think President Obama's reforms are enough to begin to turn it around? Before we get to what's gonna come next. Well, no. (laughs)
2: Um, No, I mean, I, you know, We've seen a shift in recent years in terms of kind of the new consensus right. about um, our criminal justice system in you know, just the last several years. I mean, it didn't exist at all when I published the book. And so I think it's worth noting how much change has occurred in a relatively short period of time in terms of what the conventional wisdom is now about whether our criminal justice system should be expanding or contracting or what Mm -hmm. ought to be happening. And, you know, I greatly appreciate the clemencies um, that Obama has granted. And I hope that in these final days, he just goes all out.
1: He's promised to do that.
2: Well, we'll wait (laughs) and see. I mean, there is just not one single reason to hold back now. That's right. There is, there's not. And, you know, I would hope that he would do a, a blanket pardon or grant blanket clemency um, for all those who he has said um, are doing time wrongly because they were sentenced under, you know, um, unfair, discriminatory, you know, um, mandatory minimum sentences, um, and so if they were unfair and discriminatory, then just let them all go. And there's no reason not to do it. Um, so I, I really I, I hope that we see that. Um, and if we don't, we should be asking ourselves, well, what does that say mm-hmm. um, about his legacy? Um, as the first black president. Um, So so I'm grateful for some of what he's done. But I don't think we can say that he has made ending mass incarceration a priority of his administration. Mm -hmm. I think there have been positive steps that have occurred um, during his tenure. And I believe he's done some important symbolic gestures, like visiting a prison as the first president to actually visit a prison. Um, but when we think about how we got to this place where now it seems that people across the political spectrum, um, Trump notwithstanding, um, have begun to question the system of mass incarceration, you know, I'd like to believe that my book and the work of many others have contributed to it, but the reality is is that we saw a shift um, after the economic collapse of 2007 and 2008 Um, Because suddenly, governors saw that there was no way to maintain these massive prisons in their states without raising taxes on the predominantly white middle class. And that there was going to have to be some downsizing. And so, you know, I really view um, that changing economic reality as the primary catalyst for this kind of awakening that Mm -hmm. has occurred amongst Um, Many of those former get tough true believers. It has not been a sudden awakening to uh, the humanity (laughs) of those who've been locked up and locked out and those whose lives have been destroyed. Um, It's been a political calculus. Um, And so I believe our job (laughs) Mm -hmm. is um, to move beyond those narrow kind of political games Um, and help build a new moral consensus about how we ought to treat and respond to the poorest and most vulnerable and how we respond when people make mistakes, when people sin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What is our response as a collective, as a nation and in our communities? And that's a conversation um, that I wish had begun um, you know, years ago um, but we have an opportunity, I believe, um, to really force that conversation now.
1: How do you suppose we can force that conversation, particularly in the times that are coming under the Trump administration? We have, for instance, he's nominated the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, mm-hmm. who has been very clear yeah. uh, in showing himself to favor Trump's law and order policies, has called uh, Barack Obama's commutations and pardons uh, ridiculous and reckless, mm-hmm. uh, and has been amongst the senators who are currently mm-hmm. uh, trying to uh, prevent uh, the law that will again uh, allow for fair sentencing. So how, how do we begin?
2: Well, you know, I, I think that it's a, it's a process of cultural transformation. And so, you know, I told you when we began this conversation, that, uh-uh. uh, when we agreed to do this conversation, that I really wanted you to talk about your work as well. Because I find that your book, Stand Your Ground, is such an important contribution to thinking about kind of our culture, American culture, with respect to... Um, you know it's punitive impulses mm-hmm. um, to poor people and people of color and so if you would please share a little <laughs> bit about the thesis of your book
1: I thought I was going to get out of that Yes,
2: um, you know I'd, I'd really love I'd love to respond to that can you share the thesis of your book and what stand your ground culture is in your view because yes. that to me is what
1: ultimately needs to be transformed that culture Thank you for asking. I thought I was going to get out of this today, however. But no, I think, and actually to go back to something that you said about uh, a change of consciousness, right? because it's very clear, and I agree with you on this matter, that something more is going on. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely what led me to write Stand Your Ground, mm-hmm. uh, because the recognition, after the Trayvon Mer- Martin uh, not simply his murder, but the way in which his murder and the way in which he was characterized in the news. And I could not understand how other people couldn't see which that would seem so obvious to me. Mm -hmm. One, that Trayvon Martin was simply a teenage boy, Mm -hmm. being a teenager, trying to get home. And if someone else, a stranger comes up to you in an aggressive manner, then you are going to respond by running or whatever, Mm -hmm. talking, protecting yourself or being a teenager. Mm -hmm. So I first recognized that which I already knew but you see it in a starkly different way sometimes and maybe it was because at the time my son was a teenager that he didn't have the right to be a teenager as other black teenagers don't have the right Mm -hmm. to be a teenager. You can get killed being black and a teenager. Mm -hmm. The other thing that startled me was the discovery that he was the one going home. Mm -hmm. He was the one closest to his home. Mm -hmm. If anyone had the right to stand the ground, Mm -hmm. it was he, because it was his ground. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I didn't understand, again, why those questions weren't raised. I didn't understand why he was being presented as a thug, the new super predator uh, that Hillary Clinton, of course, that term that she coined. Why the media was presenting him such, I saw an innocent, young, teenage boy. So I said, what's going on? And I, I, I thought something more is going on deeply embedded in the consciousness of America. Then there was Jordan, and even before his case began to reach the attention of the media, my eye had been drawn to it because Jordan Davis was killed not too far from where I used to live in Jacksonville, Florida, when I taught at Edward Waters College, so I knew that area very well. But again, to look at Jordan Davis (laughs) and you see a teenage, and then there was Rakia. And these, this, this was my, as you would say, awakening in a new way. Because it forced me to ask that deeper question, as you asked in relationship to the cases you were seeing what's going on? Mm-hmm. Why are things not simply not changing, but they seem to be intensifying? Mm-hmm. Why are they intensifying? during this era of a black president. Mm -hmm. I was never ever lulled into the belief that we were at a point of racial, uh, uh, racist free society. But why was it intensifying? So that's what led me to begin just the search uh, and to do the research and to do the work, uh, much as you describe yourself doing with the New Jim Crow. And I was surprised on the journey of research. Because I thought that I would be led back to one place, which was slavery, and I thought all of this had to do with the legacy of slavery, and it does, but it has so much more, it, there's much more to it than just mm-hmm. that. And I was led back, as some of you know, to America's very identity and sense of self, mm-hmm. and this whole myth of Anglo Saxon exceptionalism mm-hmm. that has created a culture of whiteness. And in so doing, and that's what I call this stand your ground culture, that whiteness consistently tries to protect itself. What I recognized, and perhaps to some is disheartening, and I don't know after this election, perhaps so, is that how it has truly shaped the collective identity and consciousness of this country. Mm -hmm. So that people really cannot see other human beings as human beings. Mm And so their first response to them is a response out of fear. And that they really do, in this regard, Hillary Clinton was not so far off because she was speaking to the collective consciousness of white America. When she said super predator, that's what she meant. And so, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that that's what she believed, that's what she felt. Uh, to regard, you know, and she may have gone back and seen the error of her ways, but regardless of that, whether she did or not, that's a part of our collective. Mm-hmm. And so for me, something had to be said about that. Mm-hmm. And of course, now something has to be done about that. Yes. And we've seen the results of that. The prison industrial complex is the result of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, and it is, I think I'm in agreement with you, it's about more than simply changing laws, though laws we do have to change. Mm -hmm. It's about simply more than monitoring police, Mm -hmm. uh, though police we do have to monitor. Mm -hmm. It is about changing the consciousness of the nation Mm -hmm. in a way to begin to see those people whom they have not seen as people to help the nation to see black and brown bodies as black and brown human beings. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. how do we do, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. how do we do that? Which leads me back to this question to you, because we're both talking in so many ways about this revolutionary change of consciousness, and and that's what you talk about, and that's Mm -hmm. what you've called for. This revolutionary change in consciousness, as well as particularly in light of this election, but you called for this prior to these election results, and that is a a third party mm-hmm. that uh, it made me think of what w. e. B. Du Bois once said, and I may get this wrong uh, where he said that we really only have one party, right, mm-hmm. and so what we 're really choosing between are two sides of one evil party mm-hmm. and So, and you've called for, at least you've said a two-party system isn't going to get the kind of change, this revolutionary change in consciousness that we need. Could you speak to that a little bit?
2: Yes. Well, you know, I think that one of the reasons I really appreciated your contribution in Stand Your Ground is because you put your finger on... American identity, mm-hmm. white American identity, how America conceives of itself in the world. And you trace the history as well as the theology of that development of America's sense of being exceptional, which really means superior. That's right. Right? It's
1: and which a means white. the <laughs> superiority
2: complex um, of whiteness. It's about. It's deeply linked to right. the whole project of white supremacy, That's right. this whole notion of American exceptionalism. And if you watched the Democratic Party's convention um, and the speeches that were given, it was all about American exceptionalism.
1: That's right.
2: Um, it was a full-throated embrace of American exceptionalism while at the same time kind of trying to argue for a broader, tense, sort of multicultural vision of what America could be. And your work suggests that the two are fundamentally in tension with one another. That's right. Um, I believe that revolutionary change is possible and is necessary if we are ever going to birth a nation that truly views every human being as though their life and voice matters. Um, The current Constitution is not adequate to the task. (laughs) Our two-party system is not adequate to the task. Our two-party system encourages an us versus them and good versus evil um, framing of the problems and struggles and forms of suffering that people face. Um, You know, in this past election, you know, with Trump versus Hillary, Um, It was tempting to imagine that Trump was the evil and Hillary was the forces of good. Um, But of course, the truth is much more complicated than that. Um, And a two-party system, both of which are funded (laughs) by corporate interests, Mm -hmm. um, does not create the space um, for the kind of uh, deeply challenging dialogue and the forms of movement and rebirthing of this nation that is necessary um, if we're ever going to move beyond sort of these periods of progress and retrenchment and um, that have characterized Americans' race relations and American democracy since its founding. And so I don't view our two-party system as adequate to the task. I don't view our current constitution Mm -hmm. as adequate um, to create the kind of multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-faith democracy, to build that out of the ashes of slavery and genocide, we're going to need something more than the political system that we have. But beyond that, you know, I think bringing this back to revolutionary love, we are going to need to build a new moral consensus about who we are as a nation um, and what it means to be in right relationship with one another. Um, and that is the work of revolutionary love. And if we don't get honest with ourselves about that, um, I think that we are going to find ourselves not simply repeating the same kinds of political battles that we've seen um, characterizing um, you know, our nation's history. And we're not going to just see the repeated emergence of new systems of racial and social control, but Our planet (laughs) um, is is in danger um, if we don't wake up to the necessity of embracing a kind of truly revolutionary um, way of being and moving in the world that is grounded not simply in power and politics, but instead um, in a deeply rooted love that for me is not about emotion. Um, but it's about recognizing the divinity within the other Um, and when we come to recognize that we are all children of God including the kid sitting in solitary confinement um, including the man who's about to be deported um, including those who we have been taught to demonize and despise um, we are going to continue these patterns um, in the United States because as a nation we are born of slavery and genocide and the belief that some of us are not worthy of care, compassion, or concern.
1: Yeah. Again, there's so much there uh, to respond to a couple of things that it brings to mind uh, in this conversation. One is the question, is that kind of America possible? Mm-hmm. One of the things that your work has helped me to understand and see even more deeply, I talk about in my work the myth of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism mm-hmm. that has driven this country and that has created uh, this, no, this white culture, which I call Stand Your Ground. But what I'm beginning to understand is there's another myth <laughs> that is a competing myth, uh, and maybe it's just a, a false dream, and that is the myth of American democracy. Mm-hmm. And the myth that we've had that, mm-hmm. right? And Ever, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so we know that from our country's very foundation, they, it was very, made very clear that there were certain people who would be accepted into the democracy and others who were not, which of course means that it's not a democracy, that this liberty, justice, and freedom for all. So one of the questions that I'm now beginning to have is which myth is sort of uh, the one that we intend to live into uh, to, and which it will truly only be a myth. Uh, to, and so that the America's democracy is a myth. And so I wonder if this America that we're talking about is really possible. Because in order for it to be possible, you are right. We have to change, almost turn upside down, mm-hmm. the paradigm that we have created that has allowed us to even build the kind of democracy we presently have. We have to change the question in the way we ask the question. I, I think of... Uh, Brian Stevenson, who says that we ask the question, do they deserve to live? We need to ask the question if we deserve to kill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a different question. Mm -hmm. And if we begin to ask that question in that way, then it creates a whole new way of developing a world Mm -hmm. or even a criminal justice system. And so for me now, the issue is not moving from, particularly when we think of the criminal justice system, from uh, retributive justice to restorative justice, Mm -hmm. that's still the same paradigm, Mm -hmm. justice. But how do we get to what I wanna call reparative justice? Mm -hmm. How do we get there? And that takes into account reparations Mm -hmm. for the democracy we have not had, Mm Uh, even as it moves us, the only way to move toward justice is to repair the breach that you've created along the way. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not to sort of just jump there in this sort of false sense of reconciliation because that's that romanticized kind of love you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But how do you repair the wounds? How do you, the breach along the way? And then when you get there, maybe you'll have justice. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts.
2: Well, there's a lot there. (laughs) You know, I think that's one of the, I think the question, is America possible? Right. That's Is the question that's posed by Trump's election? It's posed by the system of mass incarceration and our systems of mass deportation. Um, that question, is America possible? And some of you may have heard the wonderful interview that was broadcast on NPR with
1: Vincent Harding Harding,
2: um, that revolved around that question. And, you know, um, my own view is that, yes, this idea of America that many of us hold in our hearts, this this idea that America could be, right, the America that has never been but that Mm -hmm. could be, of a multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-faith, true democracy in which every voice, every life matters, no matter who you are, where you came from, or what you have done, um, is possible, but it's a long shot. Um, And if we're going to lean into that possibility, it's going to require a leap of faith Mm -hmm. because Nothing like it has ever existed in the history of the world. And if we want to look back and say, well of course it's possible because it's been done before, well, no it hasn't. Um, There has never been um, a democracy, a truly inclusive democracy that honored the dignity and value of every human um, that has emerged from slavery and genocide. It has not happened. Now is it possible, I believe it is, Um, but it's going to require the work of faith, right? It's going to require us um, to have radical imagination um, and act with great courage and um, to really stand with in deep solidarity um, with the least of these, right? Um, There is no other way. There's uh, There's no other path to that goal. And... So, the idea that we can get there simply by kind of tinkering with the machine around the edges, whether it's our criminal justice machine or our political machine, um, and fix it in that way, I think is just deeply misguided. And we have to embrace the notion that this work is revolutionary, and there's a wonderful scene. Um, in the recent Black Panthers um, Mm -hmm. documentary that shows kind of Fred Hampton standing in front of an audience saying, I am a revolutionary, I am a revolutionary, trying to get the audience to kind of claim the identity, you see slowly one after another person standing and it's a powerful emotional scene, standing up, I am a revolutionary. The scene is so powerful because it takes great courage knowing that once you claim that, um, that you're gonna have to be willing to take risks and have to be willing to stand outside of the mainstream and have to be willing um, to be the foolish one, the unreasonable one, you know, in the circles of your family or in spaces of concern, you're putting yourself outside on the margins. Um, But you will not be alone there um, because you find that there are millions of people who are already there and who are willing and eager um, to join in a movement that is grounded um, in revolutionary love. And that is what gives me hope You know, when I travel around speaking all over the country about the necessity of building a movement to end mass incarceration, everywhere I go, I find extraordinary people who are doing brilliant, courageous work, often people who have been released from prison just months or years ago saying, I am determined to ensure no one else will have to go through what I have gone through. I am willing to stand um, with my people, my community, and to do the work that is necessary um, to transform our consciousness, to imagine, uh, reimagine what justice looks like and try to build um, from the bottom up. Um, something that is a new America.
1: Yeah, let me say, as you say that, perhaps there's another myth that needs to be exposed because there is a community that ought to be the center of that revolutionary change and claims by who they call themselves that they are and that they're willing to have the courage to do that and that's the faith community, that's the church. And yeah. so maybe there's a myth that there is a faith community or a church mm-hmm. in America mm-hmm. <laughs> because... Mm-hmm. Because it seems to me that that's the role Mm -hmm. of of the church. And so that there has to be a decision made by many institutions of faith, and as I often say, and that is whether or not they are simply social institutions that happen to be religious, Mm -hmm. or if indeed they are, in fact, religious institutions or, in fact, churches, because it seems to me, particularly if we, now that you're entering seminary, and we'll talk, sort of end, I hope, with that discussion of you coming into uh, seminary, into the seminary, but it seems to me, particularly, uh, we're talking about the Christian community, that their central symbol, the cross, is indicative of this radical radical solidarity mm-hmm. with not simply the least of these but the what i like to say the underside of the least of these the underside of the out, of those who are on the outside of our communities and the church it seems to me has failed in living into what it means to be church, what it means to join in the mending of this world, what it means to indeed join Jesus on the cross. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, if we do that, then the revolution begins, Mm -hmm. right? People often talk about uh, trying to get young people or trying to get Black Lives Matter peoples into the church. That's, that misses the point. The tr- it's not about trying to get them into the church, right? It's about the church going to them. Yes. All right? Yes. All right, so, and it's not about, I always say, no, it's not about preaching Jesus. It's about being a glimpse of Jesus in the world, mm-hmm. All right? Yes. And so I think that if we began to do, that it will take the faith community. Mm-hmm. And it ought to be, it's not that it will take the faith community, it ought to be the faith community that leads the way in this revolutionary change, that leads the way in this revolutionary change of consciousness. Moreover, it's the faith community that presumably has not simply a vision for a democracy, but a vision for a new world. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that the faith community has to work to make that vision real and to make that vision possible. So I agree with you. I agree that the task is not simply a political task and that the task is not the task of politicians or others alone, but it's the central task of the church, it's the central task of the community of faith, a community in that you are more and more moving into as you have entered seminary and so can you say a word about your move into seminary does this have something to do with a new awakening of consciousness?
2: Well yes, (laughs) I guess it does. You know I mean in many ways coming to seminary is a very odd
1: thing for me to do. (laughs) It's an odd place to be. (laughs)
2: Um, You know I was not raised in a church My mother is white, my father was black before he passed. Um, And when they got married, um, she was disowned by her family. Um, She was excommunicated by her church, her Lutheran church, even before they married. And they had difficulty finding, you know, a pastor that would marry them. Um, this was in Chicago, you know, in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And my mother was deeply scarred by that experience because she was someone of deep, deep faith. Her church was everything to her. Um, she, her parents didn't go to church, but as a kid she walked herself to Sunday school. And um, after growing up in that church to face being excommunicated and to have her church not willing to marry her and my father, um, she really and my father, um, you know, had such a crisis um, of faith that they didn't believe in established, organized Mm -hmm. religion. They said, yeah, you know, love Jesus, but recognize that you don't always find Jesus or find God in church.
1: That's true.
2: And, um, you know, more or less kind of Gandhi's sentiment, I Mm -hmm. like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, your Christians are so unlike your Christ, I think was his... I was raised to be deeply skeptical of organized religion, um, and yet... My parents raised me with a very strong spiritual foundation. And so I've had trouble over the years going to church. I sit often as a skeptic um, and have had trouble um, opening myself um, to religion um, in that way. But over the last several years, this journey that woke me up to the material reality of Mass incarceration and the existence of a new caste system has slowly led me to an awakening to the spiritual dimensions of the crisis that we face, and um, you know it really began after my book was published and I was on kind of the book tour, going from city to city to city to city. And at first, you know, when my book was first released, I couldn't get anyone to listen. Right. I mean, for the first two years, I was speaking to half-empty church basements. You know hoping, praying someone would show up and listen. And then the crowds began finally to grow. Um, But I started having this experience when I would finish giving my new Jim Crow lecture, trying to wake people up and galvanize them. And I would walk off the stage and this voice would come to me that said, all sound and fury and signifying nothing. And I was just shattered every time I would hear this voice, all sound and fury and signifying nothing. Like, my God, like I've spent years trying to write this book and now I'm out there trying to share this message and all sound and fury signifying nothing. It was just crushing me to hear this over and over again after every speech. And then finally I was invited to go to the University of Denver at the invitation of Vincent Harding. Mm -hmm. And I... um, Gave my talk and met with students, and he kind of followed me around, was escorted me, and then he pulled me aside, and he said, I've read your book, and I hear what you're saying. He's like, but I think what I hear you really trying to say, which your real message is here, past all the facts and all the data and all the history, the real message here is what you do under the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. That's the message. And I just felt just shaken in the same way that I was shaken when I realized how wrong I had been about that young man and what it meant Mm -hmm. about me and realized that, yeah, you can rail against the system and call it out and talk about the facts and lay out what the law is and you can rail against it all. But in the end, it is all sound and fury, um, signifying nothing if it isn't really coming from that place of revolutionary love. If you aren't offering a path um, that is rooted in the recognition of the divinity of each and every one of us, and the necessity of building a movement grounded in that reality, It's all sound and fury and signifying nothing. These systems will keep replicating ourselves and nothing in the end will truly change. And that helped to begin my own kind of path back towards um, a spiritual journey um, and a seeking of faith and also, I think, helped me to see the necessity, as you say, of people of faith and people of conscience kind of finding their voice and identifying themselves Mm -hmm. as real revolutionaries in this moment. Because this project of trying to birth a new America, uh, if it is not morally grounded and if it is not deeply linked to a spiritual awakening and not simply an awakening to how bad it all is, um, I think we'll see ourselves replicating these patterns for many, many years to come.
1: With that, I agree. I think i bring her, bring her, you. can jump in. <laughs> no, I, Serene asked me if I wanted to. We have a minute to say one last thing, and I think that was a good place to end because I deeply agree with that. And the question becomes how we do that. And I do believe that that must start within our faith communities. I do believe, I often say, and I believe it to be so, that while dominating in an equitable power trickles down, Mm -hmm. that change radiates up. Mm -hmm. And that change has to begin in the ways in which we relate one to another from the bottom up Mm -hmm. and we have to begin to see just as you say we have to begin to see in the other ourselves and in as much as we believe and we are and i am convinced until someone convinces me otherwise and so far nobody's been able to do that Mm -hmm. and that is that every single solitary Person, regardless, who has breath or has had breath Mm -hmm. is a sacred child of God and deserves to be treated as such. Mm -hmm. And until someone proves to me otherwise, I will continue to believe that. And therefore, I think that if we see ourselves as sacred children of God, then we have to see ourselves in the other Mm -hmm. and the ones in which we call. And until we do that, I agree with you, things are not going to change. We have to change the web of relationships from below. And I like to live by this sort of reverse golden rule, the golden rule of which every religion has its own version of the golden rule. And so if we would all only live in accordance to our versions of the golden rule, but the golden rule being uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I like to say, don't withhold from another that which you would not want withheld from yourself you don't want love withheld from you, don't withhold it from another. Mm-hmm. And so it's only there, I think, if we begin there, that we can really begin to create not simply a new America, mm-hmm. but a new world. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with you. Mm. Okay.